Welcome to Almost Awakened. I'm your host, Bill Real. We explore human development here, spirituality, psychedelics, sexuality, and more. Our aim? Equipping you with tools for a fulfilling post-religious life. This is Almost Awakened. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. Uh, this is another one in this long series that we're going to do of conversations with folks uh, that I value deeply as uh, people who have had a wide array of life experiences and uh, have some grounded wisdom to share with us. And today we have Phil McLemore. Phil, how are you doing? Great. Awesome. Glad to have you uh, on the show. We've had you on several times before, um, and I've always enjoyed these conversations. And uh, when I was making up my list of the first go around of folks that I wanted to reach out to, you were you were on that, and uh, you're gracious enough to give us some of your time this morning. And uh, anything you want to say in terms of a bio about yourself, folks who listen to this podcast will know a little bit about you already, but maybe for a few folks who are new to this, if you want to share anything you'd want to say before we jump into uh, what I think will be a really great conversation. Sure. Um, even as a child, I was always interested in what people believed and how their beliefs impacted their lives. Uh, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic schools. I went to an all-male Catholic high school. So I was deeply entrenched in Catholicism. Uh, and I took religion very seriously. Um and I always had questions. I can remember being 10 years old and we had just gone to morning mass, which was about an hour. And then we would come home and that's pretty much you do all week. We had a Mormon family that lived across the street from us. And this was in 1960. So if you're, you know, maybe you don't remember, but in those days you went to church about 10 times a week. Uh, priesthood was in the morning. Sunday school was separate. Sacrament meeting was another meeting. So there were at least three or four meetings on Sundays that spread out the whole day. And then there were meetings during the week. And I would watch this Mormon family back and forth all day Sunday and then back and forth during the week to their meetings. And I remember saying to my mother one morning, uh, gee, mom, this doesn't make any sense. We're in the true church. We go for one hour a week and these poor Mormons across the street that are going to hell, uh, they're going to church day and night. So even as a child, I'm, you know, thinking about these things and trying to make sense out of it. Um, and then uh, when I graduated from Catholic high school in 1968, I was 17. Um, church wasn't very meaningful to me. And so I had a period from 17 to 19 where I just really wandered visiting churches. I, I can't think of a Christian church I didn't visit. Uh, took the six-month Jehovah's Witness Bible study, uh, sat down with a Buddhist girl that lived behind me and got sick on the incense. Mm. Decided that wasn't my path. Plus, lotus posture about killed my knees. Uh, in any case, uh, I was uh, brought into the church and fellowship by a fabulous group of young adults in 1970. And at that point, Mormon teaching and theology just made much more sense. I mean, degrees of glory makes more sense than burning in hell if you don't believe the right thing. And uh, my wife and I talk about this a lot, but there was a vibrancy among church members in those, you know, in the 70s when we both joined that we find missing now. And 
and the church really provided me with stability, clear purpose and path, and overall just made me a better person. So I was really converted and entrenched. Served a mission from 71 to 73 in Brazil. Uh, we uh, moved back to Florida. I was the LDS campus leader at University of South Florida. And due to my success there was, was uh, asked to teach the evening institute classes at the University of Florida while I went to graduate school. And that went so well, I was actually directly recruited to be a full-time CES employee and started the program at Auburn University and uh, worked for church education for about 10 years. I assumed that if Mormonism was the truth, the more you studied it, the better it would get and the better I would get. And so I was always deeply entrenched in, in Mormon studies. Um, when I did learn about issues and history, it created quite a, quite a crisis for me, but uh, my personal identity, my marriage, because I'm working for the church, my finances was dependent on the church being true. And my sense of self was so enmeshed that hmm. um, I just had to make it right. And so I ended up in defense mode. Um, there's this sense in, in, in the church that if it's not true, nothing is true. And that if you give it up, you, you give up you know, your identity, life, the universe, God, and everything else. So it's quite traumatic for many people. Um, I studied these issues so deeply by 18, by 18, by, I'm not that old, by 1983, I was the church expert on anti-Mormon literature and uh, was working with church, with church headquarters on preparing materials and so forth. Um, in any case, I had the opportunity to leave church education. The church didn't have many people qualified to serve as military chaplains. I just happened to be qualified. And uh, so I made the shift from CES into the, uh, as an active duty military chaplain, which was great for me because it put me in the context of a general Christian minister. And uh, I continued to study uh, Mormonism and spirituality deeply, but I didn't have to engage with LDS issues very much. Um, I ended up doing a lot of marriage counseling with Latter-day Saints because local, you know this, local bishops, the last thing they want to do is marriage counseling. And so bishops would always refer couples to me. And after years and years of, of counseling with LDS couples, I came to the conclusion the gospel just wasn't working for members at the core, you know, at, in the heart. And then my uh, wife reminded me that maybe it's not working so well for you. Um, so that was when I began to seriously engage that even at best, my deep devotion to Mormonism wasn't producing the kind of Christ-like nature I really desired. Um, in 1999, I was injured back, neck, shoulder, and it threw me into quite a health crisis and uh, I was misdiagnosed. So I didn't get medical help. And I spent a lot of time studying faith and studying prayer and studying healing, believing that, you know, I can access a source that would be helpful to me. I prayed my guts out. I got blessing after blessing. I mean, my Bishop, my state president, several general authorities, 
uh, all gave me healing blessings and I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I was about at the point of despair from chronic pain and stress. I, I came across a, um, a book on, on meditation and really yoga practices mm. for stress management and pain relief. And so I took that on and it was the first hope that I had. It was very effective in, in, in um, helping me deal with chronic pain and the stress that comes from that. And then over the course of a couple of months, I started having what I would call a gradual spiritual awakening, uh, an understanding of an awareness of spiritual things that had never come to me before. And I suddenly realized that um, there was something about a deep meditation practice that got to the core of spirituality. So I spent a lot of time studying the traditions and practices of meditation. Um, I took a online course, not online course, I'm sorry. It was a, a CD course from Deepak Chopra that really impacted me. Uh, I then started attending the his courses taught by him at the Chopra Center ended up uh, frankly being converted to yoga, yoga meditation. And over the course of several years of this practice, I, I trained to be one of his meditation teachers. If I get into it, I'm serious. And all of a sudden the inner changes that I had always desired that I'd been working so hard to affect for over 30 years suddenly began to unfold in a very natural way. Um, that seemed to be beyond my effort, even though I was devoted to practice. Um, that caused quite a, an identity crisis for me. After three years, I wasn't sure. Am I a Mormon guy, Christian guy, yogi guy? Um, and I had quite an, um, a fascinating experience. Uh, I was working as a hospice chaplain at the time, and I was reading the Come Unto Me all you who are heavy laden, burdened and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. And I knew that that word yoke came from the same uh, root word as the word yoga. And in an instant, I mean it, in an instant, all of my Jesus understanding and New Testament understanding and yoga studies harmonized. It was one truth. It was one reality to me. And I suddenly realized that there was this one truth and it was manifest in yoga and it was manifest in Jesus properly understood. Mm. So um, I, I'd taken more training. Um, I left the Chopra Center for a uh, variety of reasons, but uh, um, I began teaching yoga meditation primarily, but in the context of Christian mysticism, because most people I was engaging were LDS church members who were looking out of the box for something deeper and richer. And for years, I, I taught this um, system of yoga meditation in the context of mystical Christianity all over Utah, all throughout the Western and Southern states. Uh, I wrote four articles that were published in Sunstone that were very, uh, had a lot of impact on a lot of people. Um, I spoke at Sunstone on these subjects for about 10 years in a row. I did half-day workshops there. Um, I started going on podcasts. I did an online course. Uh, I did webinars. So I was pretty active for 
a number of years. I never advertised or promoted teaching. I just would be invited from one group to another and did a lot of traveling and teaching in those years. Um, in 2016, my mother lived with us the last 17 years of her life. And the last year required almost full-time care. So I gave up everything else to care for her. And then COVID was soon after. And um, uh, I just kind of fell into the black hole, pretty much forgotten by most. And uh, so my traveling and teaching uh, pretty much ended. So um, I now just work with individuals who contact me. Um, there's usually a trickle of people every three or four months that will get in touch with me and I'll work with them individually. Um, in 2006, while all this is going on, I met a gentleman named Roy Eugene Davis. I call him Red. And um, Roy became a direct disciple, monastic disciple of the famous guru Yogananda in 1949. And by the time I met uh, Roy in 2006, he was the last living direct guru disciple of Yogananda. Um, he had an organization called Center for Spiritual Awareness with an 11-acre retreat center where I went every year for 10-day retreats. What, what's, where's that at? Because I've, I've read up on that before. It's in Lakemont, Georgia. Yeah, North Georgia mountains. It's a beautiful area. Yeah, you can make a reservation and you can go there and you can spend yep. time there. Yep, totally. Yep. It's quite, he passed away in 2019. Uh, he was really the draw. It's quite different now, but it's a wonderful place for a meditation retreat. Mm. Um, so I, he accepted me into a personal discipleship. I'll mention that uh, a little bit about that later. And so I had that personal discipleship with him for 13 years. So from essentially 2006 to 2019. Mm. Um, so uh, that put me deep, deep, deep into a particular yoga tradition, just not yoga in general. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love it. I love hearing all that. So a couple of things that come up for me. Um, one is when you say that like Mormonism didn't get into the heart. It didn't, it didn't cause the, the mighty change as Mormonism speaks of, right? Like it doesn't. Right. It, and not that it doesn't for everybody, but it didn't for me in some ways. And it, it, you're indicating it didn't for you in some ways. And I wonder sometimes I think about that a lot. And I wonder if that's because Mormonism seems to base its, plan of salvation on these checking boxes, right? It's, it's really this outward, here's your list of 10 things you have to do, do them in order, knock them out. Uh, and then, you know, endure to the end, but endure to the end is simply don't start doing the things we told you not to do. And really what life changing processes require really going inside and doing inner work, looking in the mirror and confronting the unhealthy mechanisms that we've come up with to protect ourselves from childhood trauma and other places that we got bumped into really hard in the beginning. And our brain and body came up with ways to not have to endure those things again. And, uh, you know, meditation seems to be a really, not the only way, but it seems to be maybe 
one of the most important, if not the most effective way, if one's willing to lean into that practice to get into your inner world and uh, start doing real life-changing progress and growth. Oh, absolutely. And you have to remember, I, I worked for the church. So I was doing Mormonism full-time professionally. So my thought was, you know, if this is going to work for anybody, it ought to be working for me, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was doing it all the time. And again, there were significant improvements in my life as a result of, of, of church life and the desire to be more Christ-like. But Mormonism, although it promises revelation and promises um, transformation of nature and so forth, it really is um, external practices, ordinances, a lot of mind stuff. And it's. It, I'm going to talk about this, about the types of spiritual path later, but it's the type of spiritual path that just does not really create inner transformation. It's a path yeah. that focuses on the deficiencies of people running in circles, trying to manage your sins, yeah. trying to perfect what I would call the ego structure. Well, the ego structure isn't perfectible. So sadly, a whole lot of Latter-day Saints do a lot of things to make themselves better people succeed in some ways. But what I saw in marriage counseling was hearts weren't being changed in a way that they could love more deeply and make their marriage relationship better. Yeah. Uh, Each individual still pretty hung up on their own uh, patterns and problems and issues and fears and desires and needs and, and, and then battling each other over that sort of thing. I actually developed a, a council, a marriage counseling program just for Latter-day Saints based on church teachings based on gospel principles and teachings and it just didn't connect and help and so i ended up defaulting to more traditional marriage counseling practices and that's when i thought wow this it this just isn't working in people's lives and then i would go home and complain and my wife would say to me well you know you've been you've been trying to be a patient person for about 20 years and you're not doing so well no yeah no, i can relate <laughs> And so when I looked in the mirror, you know, it's easy to see it in others and to complain about others. But when I looked in the mirror, although I was a little better person on the surface and I was trying to learn how to love better, I was still pretty much limited by a whole host of personal, you know, narratives and ego problems and difficulties managing my own fears and needs and desires. It it seems as though the things we've just been talking about in the last few minutes would factor into my first question, which is this idea of these, this, you know, we all have pivotal moments in our life and a pivotal moment where uh, that influenced you, that you understood like whatever your current perspective is today on spirituality and personal development, it seems as though it goes back to those moments you've just talked about. But I, I wanted to give you space that if there was any other moment, in your life that was just deeply profound in sort of picking you up and turning you and setting you down another spot and uh, helping you kind of see you yourself, your outer world and your inner world from a, from a brand new perspective and be able to do things differently. I wanted to give you a chance to speak to that. Sure. Um, I'll probably cheat a little bit. I, I have six pivotal moments in mind. It's really a sequence of pivotal moments. 
the first occurred when I was on the last week of my mission and I had a missionary companion. We were put together just for the last week of our mission. And we were talking one day and he said to me, um, Elder McLemore, have you ever prayed for an hour? And it just blew my mind. I thought, whoa, pray for an hour. I mean, I couldn't even imagine it because, mm. you know, prayer is running your mouth. Right. And that just kind of stuck in my head. And then um, after I'd gotten home and was kind of getting settled into life in school, I thought, I'm going to try this prayer for an hour. And so I knelt down with the commitment to pray for an hour. And again, Mormon prayer is you thank God for stuff, you express your blood, you know, thank gratitude for blessings. And then you start asking for a bunch of things. Well, I found at my best, I could express gratitude for blessings and pray and bless for my family and friends and every person on the planet in about 10 minutes. And I was out of stuff to say, mm. <laughs> what do I do with the other 50 minutes? And it was extremely difficult to sit in silence. Um, mm. In working with Latter-day Saints in meditation, Latter-day Saints are terrified of silence. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I, I've been in stakes where the high priests were instructed to never let more than a minute of silence pass in a testimony meeting. And we were instructed that if nobody gets up to bear their testimony, it's our obligation to get up there quick and bear a testimony so there's no gap, there's no waste of time. For most Mormons, uh, silence is a waste of time. And there's a lot to do to get to the celestial kingdom. You can't, <laughs> you can't just sit idle, right? You've got things to do, boxes to check, lists to complete. I know. And I sadly, I, I find most Latter-day Saints, two things. Number one, they have some inner demons and issues they typically don't want to face because it's a sign of spiritual failure. They just soon not deal with those. And then I find most members have either know or have a sense that there are some serious problems at the foundations and they really don't want to deal with those. They want to avoid those or repress those. And, and so uh, silence is a, it's a scary prospect with those demons lurking in the bottom. Um, I, I spent a lot of time reflecting in testimony meetings and, it, you know, a lot of testimony meaning is 90% of people getting up and saying, I know the church is true repeatedly over and over. It's the most common testimony. And I have visited a lot of churches in my life. And if I went into a church that I had no experience with, and I was in a meeting where, every person that spoke 10, 20 people got up and just said, I know this church is true. 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 And all the children, all the young children, it would be a freaky. I mean, we were used to that having grown, you know, having been a part of it, mm -hmm. but for a stranger to, to, to go into a church and hear that mantra repeated over and over and over. I don't think you have to be a psychologist to realize um, if they really knew this was true, why is there this need to affirm it over and over and over? The only other time I experienced that was in a fundamentalist LDS church where child after child after child got up and said, 
their prophet leader. I know brother Paul is a prophet of God. I know brother Paul is a prophet of God. I mean, it just was over and over and over. And it was freaky. I mean, it was unnerving. And uh, uh, so I, I find silence is not the place where most Latter-day Saints want to go. So for me, it was very difficult because I was in that boat. And but I gutted it out that first time. I made it for a whole hour. And and then I started that as a weekly practice. And I got more comfortable sitting in silence. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how to do it consciously or effectively. I just had this commitment of once a week to sit in silence. And what happened was after a few months of practice, coming out of that silence, I was always my best self. I always had my best thoughts, my best character. The problem is it would fade in a day or two, and then I'd be back to normal, problematic Phil. Um, so that was pivotal, you know, sitting in silence. I just didn't know what to do with it or what it meant. The second pivotal moment was what I talked about. I learned formal meditation for stress and pain management. And when that transitioned from a therapeutic practice to suddenly a keen awareness of a deeper reality. That was a pivotal moment. That's when I realized, wait a minute, there's something here other than therapy. There's, um, this is a doorway into discerning and perceiving wh whatever you want to call it, a deeper reality, the deeper reality, God, spirit, whatever. And then after two or three years of that, it was obvious this obvious that this inner refining that I wasn't totally aware of was taking place to the point where after three years, my wife said, what's going on with you? You're a different person. And we talked about that at some length. And, and it, you know, I could summarize it by saying a lot of negative qualities she didn't would rather not have around suddenly faded away and a lot of positive christ-like qualities i had always desired just seemed to unfold in a very natural way and, and that's when i realized wow there is an inner refining going on here um, i did spend a lot of time trying to harmonize this new spiritual perception and inner refining with Mormonism. I needed those both. I need both. I needed both of those things to be true. And I have to admit that most LDS who come to me wanting to learn to meditate and who are looking for deeper spiritual practice, they also want me to find a way to help them make church still be okay and to work for them. And that gets to be uh, an, an interesting dynamic. Um, the third pivotal experience was after about three years probably of daily meditation one morning i had a had an instant direct realization or experience of the presence nature and character of god and then some insight into that presence and nature and character being a part of my own being mm -hmm. Um, that was uh, a pivotal moment. At that moment, I instantly could discern the truth or falsity of Christian or religious 
doctrines and teachings with, I mean, it was just 90% obvious to me what Christian LDS or other religious teachings and dogmas were true or not true. I mean, it just, um, that, that, that this direct knowing of the nature and presence of God made all of that very clear to me. And so from that point of view, Mormonism was substantively deconstructed without any trauma and I had no more need to maintain a shelf of issues that, you know, I was hoping would be resolved. That just all collapsed in an instant. Um, and, and for another year or two, uh, most of my experiences with God or what would Ken Wilbur would call uh, second or third person. So, Ken Wilbur, Wilbur, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Spiral dynamics and yeah. uh, so yeah, he has this model of the of uh, uh, ways of experience God. It's called the one, two, three of God. But God can be experienced in first person, second person, third person experiences. So third person experience, you know, you're experiencing the divine in nature um, or creation, or maybe with others in the third person experience second person of god would be a sense of relationship you know god is directly interacting with me as a person first person experience would be an experience of pure oneness where the sense of self dissolves and there is one person me god me and god right um and so probably up until year five of my meditation practice i was having second and third person experiences and there's nothing wrong with second and third person experiences they can be very profound very inspiring very transformative and um you, you know in a lot of in yoga and a lot of other mystical teachings there's this wave ocean metaphor you know god is the ocean and we are the waves you know the wave pops up and has a shape and it moves around then it dissolves back into the ocean kind of a first person experience that's scared me to death the thought of me being a little wave and then gone back into the ocean and poor little phil has disappeared terrified me and so i just kind of pretended that didn't that perspective didn't exist in my mystical understanding and experience which leads me to the fourth pivotal moment which was one morning in my meditation practice I could tell, it felt like I was on the edge of a cliff and there was a choice of staying where I was or closing my eyes and just surrendering myself off the edge. And um, in spite of the fear, I allowed myself to do that. And I suddenly found myself in what I would call a first person realization of the divine of God. Subject and object broke down uh, I'm experiencing God, the divine, in pure oneness. Um, little Phil was gone. It, it's kind of strange because that year, um, I forget how old I was in my 60s, probably earlier, mid-60s, but uh, my children decided to give me a parasailing experience for my birthday. And so we went up on this at the point of the mountain near where we live where they do a lot of parasailing and 
I was, I'm terrified of heights. And, uh, one of my son-in-laws was there. We were going to do it together. Well, he chickened out and I didn't want to chicken out in front of my whole family, you know, wife, children, grandchildren. So, uh, after some time, I made this inner resolve that no matter, even being this scared, I'm going to jump off of this mountain top and uh, I got near to the edge. I had that commitment. And then all of a sudden, this big wind, this big gust of wind popped up and just pushed me, just threw me off that top out into open space. It, it was it was like a moment of choice and grace, you know, choice and the movement of spirit at the same time. I had made the choice, but I... Mm really hadn't done it. And then that wind threw me off. Mm. And that's kind of that, what that experience was. I felt like I was on the edge. I made the choice I was going to go. And then all of a sudden there was this movement of divine wind or divine breath that took me into that realization of oneness. And right after that, I woke up one morning and coming out of sleep, I got stuck in this um, transition between formless awareness in deep sleep and then my little fill sense of self forming up. I got stuck in between. And as I was awakening, I had this conscious experience of myself as fully expanded, limitless, unbounded, in and through all things. Um, and very difficult to describe, but my little Phil was gone and the fear of losing little Phil was so hilarious that I just started laughing. It's like I'm clinging to this little Phil guy, afraid of losing it when my true nature is this expanded mm -hmm. reality and this expanded self. So I just, you know, it's like a child holding onto a little favorite toy. So for a year or so, I substantively identified with this transcendental self. It was an interesting year. And at that point, my vision really was that uh, this is, you know, what I would be or who I would be, so to speak. And then tried to figure out how that related to life, day-to-day -day living. Um, soon after that, I was in my uh, my meditation practice at that point had been a, a transcendental practice so set the body aside set the mind aside and uh, allow yourself to shift into a deeper reality or higher mm -hmm. awareness and um based on something i had read in a, a text the yoga sutras i decided one morning to practice and an embodiment practice, not a transcendental practice, an embodiment practice. And so I actually spent about a week turning my attention within and being keenly aware of my body, the life and existence of my body, the energy, intelligence, and life force in my body. It's a long story, but um, ultimately I, I became keenly aware of the activity of molecules and atoms and organs and and uh, the extent of 
energy within a body, life within a body, intelligence within a body that makes it work the way it does. And uh, I had a uh, such an amazing experience of energy. It was energy so much I, I had to stop the meditation because I felt like it was going to, that my physical body could not contain it. And so I finally learned how to practice that and have some management of that energy and just to go deeper and deeper into uh, the mystery of embodiment. And uh, maybe day six or seven, I went deeper, 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 suddenly experienced a, I shifted from experiencing the, the diversity of life and movement of life, particularly in my own body, to realizing that all of this came out of a single source. And when I hit awareness of that single source, boom, I suddenly found myself in the same place where I would end up in my experience of transcendental meditation. Mm. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, full embodiment is the same as full transcendence. It's quite a mystery. Um, and I ended up, I, 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 again, because I'm teaching yoga meditation, it, yoga meditation is primarily mantra meditation. And I did have a number of students for whom mantra meditation didn't seem to work well for whatever reason. So I developed this meditation called resurrection meditation, which had to do with meditating on your embodiment and using the body as the focal point for a shift into deeper awareness. And so I began teaching that to, to uh, students who were having a problem with transcendental meditation or mantra meditation. And for a lot of them, it really worked well. They needed that opposite path, so to speak. Um, so that was number five. And then finally, the sixth pivotal moment is I was in meditation one morning. I was in this kind of oneness state and identifying with this myself in this transcendent state. And I suddenly, surprisingly, became aware of my individuality. Um, it wasn't limited by little Phil, but it clearly was um, the experience of individual existence. And I suddenly realized that resurrection is the paradoxical union of my universal self and my individual self. And I suddenly saw Jesus as a person, a human being, who embodied and manifested the universal God, but at the same time maintained his own personal identity, his own individuality. This puts me at odds with a whole lot of, uh, of teachers in Buddhist and yoga traditions, but um, nonetheless, that's my current experience where I, I experience myself both as the transcendental divine and as an individualized aspect of that universal divine, both of those together, both of those valid and, and both of those with enduring value. Um, so 
in my view, Christianity went way off the rails when it turned Jesus into God, a God, unique son of God, whatever it does, substantively different from all other human beings. Once Jesus became different than all other human beings, then he's no longer uh, someone you can follow or become one with because he's substantively, substantively different. If in fact he was a human being who awakened into his transcendental and personal reality in harmony with that and then revealed it and mediated it and continues to mediate that, wow, he now becomes a spiritual master of epic proportion. And But that only works, it's only meaningful, it's only possible if he was like us, is like us, and there's something in us that's like God as it was in him. So to me, that's where Christianity fell off the cliff and uh, mm. went in a, So now to summarize this, as far as personal development, my challenge now is, can I allow the presence, nature, and character of God to flow through me, the individual, into this world? Can I choose to live in harmony with that, that, you know, the, the ultimate reality beyond my human conditioning, beyond my habits, beyond my thought and behavior patterns? Uh, can I do that? And that's really the focus of my spiritual living now. Um, can that flow through me into this world? Um can people experience not only the little Phil, the unique individual personality, can they also feel that transcendental divine? Yeah. I, when I look at the most profound experiences in my life, they are, they are experiences that have shown me how separate and alone I am, how interconnected and miraculous and big all of this is um there seems to be sort of uh, a dualistic thing going on there where uh in some sense like you you bond together with people to help carry you through this thing called life and in reality you're all by yourself and it's sort of a mirage because it only lasts as long as we all agree to hallucinate that it's lasting Oh, and soon as the person, soon as the person that you want to share a life with as a friend or a primary partner or a co, you know, coworkers, that all ends the moment those agreements are no longer being hallucinated. And, uh, and, and then the other side of it too is, you know, 13 point something billion years ago, this creative energy starts and it, it expands and all of us and it and all the things that breathe and live all came out from it. And for you or I to be here with this consciousness and these, this history and these experience is beyond miraculous. If, if your 17th great grandfather had simply stumbled a little bit on his way home that day before he made love to your, you know, your 17th great grandmother, I think I said 17th the first time, um, <laughs> great grandmother, you wouldn't be here. Some other sperm would have met that egg and it would have been a completely different and that would have infected all the other people that it, that person came in contact with that would have changed everything by this point the entire planet would be different 
right. because of that one moment. Right. Um, and to me, that's crazy. But yep. so this idea of being alone in yourself and your own individual, and then also being interconnected with everything in the universe, we're fighting in this life to get our own needs met. And we're fighting in this life, if we're a healthy, good human being, we're fighting in this life to also not have our needs cause pain and trauma and suffering to others. So my question here is, how do you balance individuality and interconnectedness so as to protect your own well-being from abuse and trauma and suffering as much as maybe you want to or don't want to? Because the Buddhist sort of sort of wants to reduce suffering and learn to live with suffering. And then and then the interconnectedness of like I want to make sure that my primary partner that their needs are met or that my coworker that I'm not bumping into them too hard or my friends I want to make sure that we go places that they also enjoy. How do you balance that dynamic? Yeah, so um Yeah, that's I mean that's really the focus of my spiritual practice now um my greatest joy is clearly experiencing self in oneness with god creation and others but um i also like the little phil guy and the little phil relationships and activities and it's easy for me to get caught up in those and lose what i would call resurrection living I mean, for a long time in my mind, I had this idea that the goal was resurrection living. In other words, manifesting the divine in day-to-day life. I imagine, you know, Jesus being capable of doing that. And at times when I would get lost in little Phil and be impatient or uh, selfish, you, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, God, more transformation, more improvement. Uh, at some point, I decided, you know, um, maybe this is an ideal that um, maybe this is an ideal that could be set aside. Um, I, I decided it just is not essentially a bad thing for me to experience myself as the divine transcendent and to be fully invested in the life of little Phil. Um, it's perfectly fine to have human fun and foibles. Um, our imperfections are certainly going to cause uh, issues and conflicts or misunderstandings. Uh, I think we're committed to wanting to correct those things when those life friction happens. Um, so I'm kind of okay going back and forth. I mean, some might think I'm a failed yogi um, because I tend to separate the two. I tend to get involved in little fill activities and then I tend to have my spiritual practice and reflections and so forth. Um, my wife is much superior to me. She, she is the master of living divine feeling and desire and thought in every aspect of her life. It doesn't matter if she's cleaning the kitchen or tending to the animals. It's just being a very natural thing for her. And I quite, admire that. I, I tend to go back and forth, but I, I'm not feeling bad about that anymore. I'm thinking it's legitimate, you know. Mm. Um, and it's weird because I some people, oh, this doesn't sound arrogant, some people experience God in and through me. 
um, some people experience me as just a goofy ass. And it's kind of interesting to reflect on on uh, how I can be experienced in such different ways. It's just different people's interpretations. I know when uh, Roy uh, talked about Yogananda, he told me a lot about Yogananda, but in his experience, he always experienced omnipresence in his presence. Um, others didn't. He said other people saw him as just a nice guy. Others saw him as a dictatorial uh, donkey butt, I guess would be the best expression. Um, so, yeah, sometimes people get the universal connection. Sometimes they just get lost in your the, the quirks of your personality, you know. Um, Roy himself had an, a kind of very an interesting um, introverted personality. He did not want to be um, followed as a person. He wanted people to be on the path, you know, the eternal way path. And he cared about um, logical, clear, accurate teaching. And so a lot of people began to call him the Dr. Spock of yoga because he seemed to lack a lot of emotion and was very cerebral in his teaching. Um, and um, I just accepted that as the way he was until the moment. And I remember the moment when he suddenly realized I wasn't there to use him or take advantage of him. I was there because of the path and I cared about awakening and living consistent with that. And at that moment, when he realized I could be trusted, that, you know, we changed from Dr. Spock relationship to very intimate friendship. And so when I would meet with him every year, we would do both. We would sit and talk about our personal lives, right? What have you been doing? What have you been thinking? What have you been experiencing? We'd both discuss our personal lives and then there would be a pause. And then we would just, we would just sit together in silence, experiencing the oneness of God and oneness in God. So, um, yeah, there is a dualism there. Um, that dualism can be, I mean, a paradox, the definition of a paradox is the union of opposites, right? So universality and individuality are opposites. There is that point of union. I call that resurrection living. It's glorious. But if we're on one side or the other for periods, I think it's just fine. And um, I do, uh, you had an interview a couple of weeks ago with um, a yogi guy. Was, was his name Bob? Bob uh, Peck? Uh, that sounds familiar. I'm trying yeah. to remember offhand. So that was a good uh, interview. Really yeah. good interview. I mean, it was, it was like uh, Krishna, Buddha uh, sort of thing. But uh, I quite enjoyed the interview and him. But he shared that Sufi practice of, you know, they'll come into a room to sit down and, hey, let's introduce ourselves. And everybody goes, hello, I'm God. Oh, hello, I'm God. Oh, hello, I'm God. And um, I get it. I mean, I get it. But um, I find that a little disturbing almost. Um, I'm Phil. I hope God can be discerned and experienced in me and through me. 
um, to me that that polarity, which does become one, is important. And um, so I, I think a lot of the mystical traditions underemphasize the enduring value of of individuality. Um, having said that, one of my core realizations uh, is that God needs us as much as we need God. That sounds a little strange, but, and we haven't taken time to define God, um, but from the mystical point of view, if God is the formless reality, consciousness, existence, being, right? Mm. Eternal, beyond time, beyond place and mm. space. If God is the formless reality, um, God's expansion of self into the created world, into the material world, into individuality um, was quite a movement. And in that sense, God needed that manifestation through creation and through us for full expression of divine life. So in that sense, uh, God needed us, needs us as much as we need God. And I find that to be a very inspiring realization. But we are not God. That's my point is um, I can be one with and in God. God can manifest self through me, uh, but I'm not God. So I'll never introduce myself as God. Um, Christian mystics have another problem. They believe in communion, but not oneness. So they believe they can commune with God, but because Jesus is the only real um, person who's who's ultimately one with God, we can't attain that. So we commune. Right, with Christ God becomes the mediator. Become yeah, yeah. So um, I love it. So you know, you mentioned time and space and God being kind of formless consciousness reality. Um, it leads to the next question, which. You know, I've been I've been wrestling with these ideas out in quantum mechanics, and the argument that's happening right now is that they're deciding based on the science of quantum mechanics, kind of on the edge of science, that time and space are not fundamental to the universe. They essentially are a created afterproduct, right? And that the thing that is fundamental is consciousness, right? And if that's true, then we're back to this very idea of like God, whatever God is. And, you know, I think on some level, I think you would agree. And I certainly will say this, that he's not a bearded man in the sky, helping right. people find their lost sets of keys in Kaysville, Utah. Right. But, uh, but whatever it is, consciousness, the argument from the edge of science is that consciousness is fundamental to the universe. There was consciousness first. Right, And then time and space are after creations of that. So my question to you, as somebody who spent a lot of time meditating and thinking about these constructs, um, what are we to make? What is, what is the reality of uh, consciousness? What is the nature of reality itself? And what, what can you tell us? Uh, about what the world is versus what we perceive it to be. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Anyone, scientist or sage, who thinks they get the corner on the market of yeah. reality and consciousness is 
has a high opinion of themselves uh, and quite frankly, lacking humility before the, yeah. you know, the mystery of existence, life and consciousness. Mm. Um, yeah, the big debate is, is consciousness the epiphenomena of sophisticated arrangements of matter or is matter the epiphenomena of consciousness? And that's been going back and forth. You know, does the brain and the, does the human brain and nervous system produce consciousness or is it the medium through which consciousness uh, interacts with the material world? Um, I, I remember 1970, I was in a college physics class and the physics teacher was explaining to us the nature of matter. And he made the statement that if you took all of the space, it's not really empty space, but if you took all the empty space out of atoms that make up matter, that the entire earth and everything on the earth would be reduced to the size of a beach ball. I mean, that blew my mind. And I think since then, the beach ball has gone to a baseball and I think now it's down to a pea. But um, the thought that that matter squished it would be the size of a beach ball or a pea was mind-blowing to me yeah. because it is completely opposite to my day-to-day living experience right um well of course that leads to the teaching and many of the, of the mystical eastern mystical traditions that the material world is simply an illusion and you know, will evaporate into nothingness at some point. I, again, I don't go there. I, it's not real as experienced, right? As interpreted and experienced, but it's real. And uh, I happen to believe that there's a ongoing purpose in the divine expressing itself through the variety of creation. However, our consciousness, our minds, create and interact with what appears to be a formed existence or a material oral i have no clue but my personal experience clearly is that that consciousness existence being is the fundamental eternal reality out of which comes the manifest world and all the properties and things and experiences that we have. Um, so yeah, that's that's foundational to me. Now there are some great authors that deal with this. Uh, I love Deepak because Deepak loves science. Uh, he loved physics. He talked about it a ton. He actually believes that one day science and the scientific method will substantiate the foundational the foundational reality of consciousness. Hmm. And he actually sponsors conferences where he tries to bring in the top scientific minds and physicists to grapple with these issues. Um, mm. So, yeah, to me, it's completely illogical to and unscientific to assert that sophisticated arrangements of non-conscious matter can create consciousness. It's just much more likely that consciousness is the source. Yeah, it's, it's such a, and again, we're so limited in our ability. Like you said, anybody who yeah. claims to know the definitions and interpretations that should be made official is, is not only, you know, fooling us, they're fooling yeah. themselves. And, yeah. um, 
but man, it's such an interesting idea that, and it comes down to me, you know, I can easily get there going, you know, 13.8 billion years ago, right. creative energy. It's just, it's sort of coincidence, but it's also like intentional coincidence, meaning that anything that has the ability to make a choice, a living organism, anything that goes towards danger or malnourishment is going to die. Anything that goes towards nourishment, nourishment and safety is going to live. And if you keep rolling those dice zillions and zillions of times, you end up with more complex uh, life forms that have the ability to develop traits to survive. Um, but, but when we get into this idea of nature of reality and consciousness, it really comes down to me about intentional is, is it intentional? Is there something that was in the beginning that whatever it is, the, the expansive progressive movement from that moment has some sort of intention behind it, or is it just, right. just coincidence and creative energy, creative, unconscious, unintentional creative energy. And, yep. uh, I don't know, yep. like it's, that's the wrestle I love yeah. to, you know, oh, I get around with my friends in a hot tub with a, with a, with a, an adult beverage. That's the conversation yeah. we're having. Yeah. That's, that's one of the top three issues for me. It is intentional. And for me, the, what evolved in the human nervous system and brain is a mechanism that has the capability not only to interact with the created world or the material world, but it also has the ability to um, perceive and interact with the deeper reality, the spiritual reality, which when I say spirit, I'm talking about formless reality. Um, And it, it, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I, I, um, I, I've had a lot of wild synchronistic events in my life where, you know, there clearly appears to be intent or destiny manifesting. And it's, it's like we're past and future collapse into one event in my life. Um, Chopra had a practice he taught us where he would have us on a piece of paper, write down seven intentions and he would have it have it spread it out you know our relationships our financial or career life our relationships our spiritual life we would write down seven intents uh and we read them pray about them meditate on them put them in our pocket and then you know he would say just wait you know just wait and see what what happens right so the idea is that your intent is interacting with this deeper reality and that deeper reality is going to manifest in some way or ways in the day, day to day life of the material world. Mm. And um, I've just had some amazing experiences with that happening. I can't say every one of those things manifest. And sometimes you change them because you realize you've got an egoic intent in there that's inappropriate. Um, having said that, I, I've, I've dealt with a lot of people who are into this manifestation philosophy and stuff, and they live really weird lives. Uh, there's a lot of self-deception and creative, creative imagination and fantasy, and their lives get very weird thinking they're controlling the higher reality and 
you know, trying to make things happen. It's, it's, it's kind of a super egotism that I don't find bears much fruit. Mm. Um, in any case, um, yeah. And, and, uh, Roy Red, my guru teacher, um, he often would have us just contemplate existence being, you know, he, let's sit, let's contemplate existence being, you know, wow. Mm. I, uh, I love these conversations and I, I, and I appreciate your perspective. So we're, we're about halfway through the time that I've got here for this and we're just shy of halfway in the questions. So just an FYI, um, I want to talk for a moment, the, the intersection of religion and spirituality, uh, having done, uh, ayahuasca, having, um, sat with what is spirituality, what I, what I arrive at is this idea that whatever, whoever the shaman or the guru is, they really call you to go inward and figure out answers for yourself and that no one should come forward and say, I have the truth for everyone. You know, I've had, I've, I've spoke to the burning bush and now all of you sit around in a circle and let me tell you what the, what the nature of all of this is and how you get back to right. whatever salvation is. And instead spirituality seems to be like, Hey, here's the tools to perceive the world differently because that's necessary to begin to recognize that maybe you don't know what you think, you know, right. And then like we can share with people and they can learn from our experience too. And we all integrate based on that information, but no one has the answer. And religion seems to have come along and said, no, 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 this, this, this is going to work much better if we just decide we have the answers and we charge a cost for that and tell people how to do it. And so I, my question to you is how do you play in that sandbox of spirituality and religion and what do those two things, how are they different? How are they the same? And what do you make of them? Yeah, good question. Um, not too long ago in, in, in a, a podcast you were doing with Brittany Hartley, um, I forget her exact words, but with some emotion, she was expressing her irritation toward people who take their subjective spiritual experiences and then want to uh, make it normative for everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. I've had this experience. You have to believe this mm-hmm. uh, or experience this to be valid. And I absolutely agree with, with that point of view. Um, obviously I do sense that what I'm, ex- there, that there is reality and authenticity of what I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. But, Again, we're talking about this expansive mystery. I just have to also realize that even uh, having authentic experience, I'm simply expanding into this and only experiencing a part of it. For me to think I can make what I'm experiencing as normative makes no sense. Um, However, when I find that my experience or realization or understanding is consistent with and harmonious with what I would consider to be great authentic teachers and masters throughout history, then I think, okay, I'm, you know, I'm onto something here. Um, Yeah, for me, spirituality is some level or degree of actual conscious experience and knowledge of of God, deeper reality, whatever. Um, Religion should be organized spirituality. I mean, you know, the word religion comes from the word ligament, which means to join, hold together, join together. 
it, it should be an organized devotion and effort to joining individuals with God, joining individuals with each other, providing expanded opportunities to to uh, join with others in positively and productively, you know, engaging the joys and difficulties of life. Um, sadly, and I've studied a whole lot of religions, they they become particular systems of belief, dogma, practice. Uh, it creates separation from people within the group. It creates separation from uh, other groups. Um, they're just clearly mind-made, man-made systems that reflect, uh, you know, kind of what I would call ego mind uh, points of view. At best, intended to help people make sense out of life and to have some control. At worst, they're, they're structures of power and control. And from my perspective, the early, you know, like nature religions were, I, I would classify them as feminine in nature, but they were attempts to live in relationship with forces that weren't quite understood, to live in harmony with kind of this deeper mysterious reality. Mm. And it it seems to be my view that when men realize that this spiritual stuff might be used to either control those forces, which is superstition, or more reliably to control others, oh gee, we're not controlling God very well, we're going to control others, you know, so religion ends up mm. being this, this system of power and control over other people. Um, and then that perspective gets imposed on God himself, herself. Um, so I've yet to find a religion that maintains um, what we're defining here as kind of genuine spirituality. They just, they tend to always go off into some sort of power and control and um uh, now i mean i've had decades of experience experiencing interacting and working with ministers priests sages and members of just about any religion or or christian denomination or eastern you know religion um and there's always wonderful genuinely loving people of character um, there's no doubt that many of these systems, religions, have wretched teachings that portray a mean, manipulative, punishing God or an elitist mentality, raising one human person or system over another. Um, and I find those good folks in those systems spend a little bit of time doing some mental gymnastics to reconcile those, those teachings. Um, problem with fundamentalists is they double down and impose they, they they don't even go through the you know gee maybe this doesn't seem like this would be godly you know um yeah it doesn't matter how absurd or irrational the the theology is or the rules are it, it they just press forward and um the more religion unfolds in that way the more it loses its vitality mm wherever that came from. And then you mm. end up with duty, right? Duty and commitment, yeah. no matter what, or you end up with, uh, emotionalism or sensationalism or exaggeration of coincidence, all that being substituted for, mm. for actual experience of God. Um, one of my bet, one of my, when I first started moving into interacting with metaphysical religions and spiritual traditions, 
I don't know why I thought I would discover a whole different world of leadership and organization and function. My first big shock was even in these meta, what I would call metaphysical religions, um, there, there were the same characteristics of elitism, of power, of, I mean, it just, um, I forget what I was um, expressing on the internet one time many years ago, but some Hindu guys got upset with me and, and they jumped on where I was uh, uh, commenting online. And, uh, you know, one of these guys was a Shiva worshiper, one was a Krishna worshiper, and they were fundamentalists. And they said things like, you know, Shiva is God. And the other guy was Krishna is God. Believe in him, believe in that, or you will be destroyed. And I'm like, holy cow, this is like some weird Protestantism, you know, imposed on yoga or Buddhism. I mean, it was just, I couldn't believe that was present. Um, Yogananda's organization, which uh, became known as Self-Realization Fellowship, um, completely does not reflect his character at all. I mean, in just a few years, they became just like Mormonism. And I'm not exaggerating. And it's a little weird that some of his inner core of disciples came from Salt Lake City. It's not that they were linked with the church, but within just a few years, um, their president is treated like a prophet. Their celibate monks are treated like general authorities. When they come into a local area, they're presiding. They teach. Everybody hangs on their words. Um, I mean, I was just absolutely stunned. I was meeting with a little group in Salt Lake City, and they had a monk visiting. And so, they, you know, they feel like a general authority is there. And then we had a little break between the meetings. And we're having some little refreshments. And this man, uh, older man, he'd been a member there for about 40 years, just bellowed out joyful exclamation. He just bellowed out. I'm so happy to be a member of God's only true church. And we're in Salt Lake city. I mean, it's, Sorry, I don't understand. that was my wife. Mm, I didn't either. I, so anyway, she, I, I, it was like, this is too weird. Here's this metaphysical group. I mean, Yogananda started a ch his church in Hollywood on sunset Boulevard is called the church of all religions, right? all welcome and then here's a longtime member in one of his later congregations doing the true church thing i mean it just yeah. my mind just exploded whatever whatever god is he doesn't care whether we do baptism by immersion or not oh. whatever god is he doesn't care if uh if 10 percent of tithing is paid um my son did his medical residency in Hawaii, and when I would go to visit him on Sundays, he and I would go visit Buddhist um, churches. And it's a little strange because they take a Christian Sunday format, right? Uh, they'll have Sunday services, and they're, they're somewhat formatted similarly. Um, but as we would go around to Buddhist congregation after another, I was so surprised at the at the superstition. I mean, they would have Buddhas up front and the whole idea was if you gave, you know, the money's laid in front of them. And the whole idea is you lay the money in front of them, desiring a particular blessing. And if you give the money, you get the blessing, right? Mm. I mean, I, I, so, you know, 
I was sad to discover that even what I would consider to be metaphysical religions end up in the same superstitious, yeah. rigid, controlling dynamic. You give uh, humans long enough amount of time and there's us's and them's uh, and the us's want to be in charge. Even in my own yoga tradition, the Kriya yoga tradition, which centers around a particular uh, method of spinal breathing, energy movement. Mm. Um, there's a ton of debate and divisions about which of the gurus or traditions are teaching it the original way or the right way. And the ones that aren't teaching the original way aren't as valid. I mean, it's like, guys, you know, give me a break. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, let's try to get through a few more of these. So uh, I want to ask, you know, tools that you think are helpful for people to transition from religion we're the right tribe. We've got the right path to spirituality, which as you name is, as you said, anybody who can name that is fooling themselves and fooling us. Um, it, it much more values like whatever, whatever helps you to see the inner and outer world differently and be accountable to it and, and then begin to make changes because you want to show up as a more full, grounded, compassionate, less traumatizing to others human being. Any thoughts from you on what kind of tools are the best or most useful to you to transition from us's and them's to interconnectedness and real accountability? Yeah. So, you know, obviously I share what has worked for me, you know, that whether it's the best, you know, Best for some, not for others necessarily. Right. Um, foundationally, for me, I see only two spiritual paths. There's what I call a deficiency path, where the human being is considered to be flawed, deficient, corrupt, uh, lost, fallen, whatever language. And the there's a whole bunch of these denominations and religions that have their own personal, have their own formulas of what a person must do and what God must do for that person to overcome their deficiencies. Um, they're essentially systems of sin management and the, the emphasis is either on sin or on the, the inherent flaws and deficiencies of the individual. And so those religions, um, again, have formulas, their own formulas of grace and personal effort, right? All the way from, all grace was just predestination. God determines everything all the way to, you know, your personal effort determines everything. Mormonism is way on the personal effort side with a touch of grace at the end. Uh, and then there's all kinds of systems in between. Uh, but they're all systems uh, that encourage a transactional relationship with God. They're systems of sin management. And um, they're rooted in the false notion that there, there's something wrong with the essence of each person. That's where most religions are. Then there's the what I call the awakening path, and it's based on the idea that the essence of each person is divine. It's God in us. It's good. And the spiritual path isn't about sin management. Um, the the spiritual path is about awakening to the divine within, which 
if done and when done, in most cases, solves the sin problem, right? The heart changes, the mind changes, the desires change, and you don't have to be beating up people with systems of sin management. You just let them awaken and develop into divine nature. So, so for me, when it comes to uh, practices or tools effective in helping individuals shift from a religious framework to a more expansive spiritual perspective, I would say, number one, correct teaching. So the first thing I do is explain these two paths, right? You're used to, uh, you're deficient, there's something wrong with you, and you're going to get out of that by doing these things, or, and this much grace, or God doing it, and you responding, whatever the system is. Um, I... I always teach the what's come to be known as the perennial philosophy. So, um, you know, it has three things. There's an infinite number one. There's an infinite, changeless reality beneath the world beneath the world of change. Number two, that same reality constitutes the essence or core of each person. Number three, the purpose of life is to discover or awaken to that reality experientially and then i had number four and once awakened to it learn how to integrate it into mortal experience um hmm. so for me correct teaching matters and i teach the awakening path and i teach the perennial philosophy uh, what gets what trips up most people is are, are these transactional sin management systems um, and so anyway, that matters to me. Um, I've, you know, a deepening experience of the presence of God is what is needed to transform each person mm -hmm. and not be used to, um, support mind or belief structures you can't let go. So I, I had, I've had several people that, LDS folks who start with me, oh, I want to learn meditation. Uh, I want a deeper spiritual life. And so I'll get them started on the path. And then all of a sudden I find out that their inner life didn't develop as quickly as they wanted. And they've jumped to one of a number of, what, of these alternative LDS groups. And there's a bunch of them. I call them, they're either second coming groups or personal appearance groups, but uh, they're hung up on Jesus coming tomorrow and we got to do these things and we're the special people that are going to do these things to make him come. Or they're hung up on Jesus appearing to him, um, you know, all of the second comforter teaching. And um, they're really mind structures. They're trying to validate. Um, I just haven't found it um, helpful at all. Uh, there's a lot of self-deception. There's a lot of uh, fantasy and imagination. Uh, and then they take the little bit of inner work. They misinterpret it, misapply it, and then get themselves involved in a different, you know, the same sort of religious structure. You know, do this and Jesus comes or do this and Jesus will come visit you personally. Um, so. Correct teaching matters to me. Number two, I do focus on on um, reinforcing 
mature, responsible, moral, kind behaviors and lifestyle. Um, if that's not present, people tend to give in to their lower nature, and that's a real impediment to inner awakening. I do focus on mastery of mind and body in healthy ways. So, you know, learning to breathe properly, learning to eat in a healthy way, uh, exercise, and yeah, I don't care what kind of exercise, mind-body integration exercises are cool, qigong or tai chi or hatha yoga. Um, uh, learning to to harmonize body and mind. Um, stillness. Uh, I also, and I got this from Deepak Chopra, I also teach sensual ecstasy. Uh, the, the perspective here is, is to consciously use each one of your five senses in a pleasurable way every day. So... Um, the, the spiritual foundation here is that each of our physical senses represent a deeper capability of spiritual perception, okay? Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting. Those all reflect spiritual qualities of, of perception and expression. And to the degree that people do that, then I find they can be less dependent on unhealthy or imbalanced sensual experiences. So every day, <laughs> Every day, I have a sensual experience with sight, with sound, with touch, with taste, with smell. Mm. Consciously, I mean, it's a daily spiritual practice for me. Uh, I have soul, I have collected music that to me resonates with my soul and inner being. I listen to, to that every day. Um, I have things that I look at or gaze at that I find beautiful or inspiring. Um, touch. I hope this doesn't sound too nutty, but my wife has perfectly shaped legs and they're the, they're the perfect balance between firmness and softness. So my touch is she gets a leg massage every morning. I mean, every morning she gets a leg massage and aside from it benefiting her. Right. It's enjoyable to you. It's a very sensual touch experience, mm -hmm. right? Um, taste smell i do the same thing i i have these wonderful fragrant soaps and incenses that i use um to, to have that sensual experience so that's one and i see that as a spiritual practice and it links us with spiritual sense qualities and it makes us less dependent on unhealthy uh use of the senses clearly practices for direct experience of god and inner self so I teach both uh, transcendental and embodied meditation practices. Uh, I teach both uh, what are referred to as positive or negative practices, uh, different ways to experience the divine within or um, the universal divine. Um, I encourage practices to develop a deeper awareness of awareness. So many people are just so lost in thought. They're not aware of the foundational awareness behind thinking. So I work on those kinds of practices. And then uh, I encourage contemplative prayers and mantras. So um, uh, I have this, this prayer mantra, God in me, God as me. I teach that for folks to use. I mean, to in a contemplative way, God in me. Okay, God is somehow in me. 
reflect on that, contemplate that. Uh, God has somehow as me, it's an ideal, right? Um, I have some just for Christians, you know, I'll take Paul's um, statement, I'm dead to sin, but alive in Christ or risen in Christ. Well, you can substitute anything for sin. You know, I'm dead to this. I'm alive in Christ or risen in Christ. And uh, so I have a variety of different yogic prayer mantras or Christian prayer mantra, mantras that people can contemplate to try to touch uh, direct experience of God. Yeah. Mm, That's love it. Yeah, I love it. Um, you short, you sort of shared there some of the insights and practices from traditions and teachers, and I, I, I want to leave room for you to say anything else you'd want to, but I'm a little nervous that we're going to run out of time here, and so I want to make sure I get to some of these other questions where you've got things that you want to deeply share. Um, so I want to talk maybe a moment about ritual and ceremony and, um and feel free to go back to the question before if you need to. But the thing that Britt Hartley's taught me is that I wanted to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like religion is just all harm and manipulation and shame and get rid of it. And if we could find a spiritual path that has nothing to do with religion, that we'd all be better off. But she showed me that there are things that the reason we had religions and the reason they worked was because they helped the human species survive and perpetuate. And, they did that through stopping us in our tracks and reminding us of things that are important and rituals and ceremonies carry that meaning. I had a friend uh, the other day who said, man, I, I just wanted to throw all these rituals out. And I said, yeah, but you make pizza every Friday with your family. And he, he chuckled because that's a ritual. Yes, it is. Um, your thoughts on the role of ritual and ceremony in your life, even as you recognize that religion takes those things and sort of corrupts them. Uh, um, boy, I mean, there clearly are and have been societal benefits to religion in general. Mm -hmm. um, we're both keenly aware of the dark side of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to the degree that we can inculcate genuine spiritual practice and realization into standing religions, you know, I, I find that to be a noble effort. Um, in my own life, uh, I love ritual and ceremony. I mean, for a person who loves to sit in transcendental oneness, I absolutely um, love very specific rituals and ceremonies. Um, for me, it's the linking of the transcendent and the imminent, the form and the formless, the human and the divine, right? God, me, the universal and the personal. Um, it's a way of trying to experience the eternal in, you know, this time, this place, in this object or in this movement. So um, I'm a big ritual guy. Where the the room I'm in now is quite small. When we first moved here, I had a large bedroom that I had my meditation spiritual area and i had a giant study table and i had a altar set up that um uh, was quite large with inspiring you know objects and so forth uh, my wife moved me into this much smaller place and so i had to put most of my stuff away and i got a dinky little study table and i had no room for a, an altar or a shrine so um 
because of my need for it, I ended up uh, pulling out a row of books in my bookshelf and installing a, a little teeny altar in there. Uh, so I sent you a picture. Um, uh, so there should be two pictures. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, this is kind of an early morning. You can see it's, I've taken out one of the sections of the bookcase and my little altar is there. Uh, and then I study and I'm up at four 30 to five. So it's dark and the only light are the candles and a little light over the books to study. Mm. But, um, there should be a close-up picture of this little altar. Let me, uh, yep. Ooh, is that the, okay. Is that the closest one? It's hard. That, to, it is. That okay. was, that's fine. So it changes from time to time, but right now, um, I've been, uh, I'll spend years studying yoga scriptures and so forth. And then I'll spend years studying new Testament and Jesus studies and so forth. Um, so right now the little altar has Jesus, uh, meditating Jesus in the center. Um, and then the objects represent the five senses and the five spiritual senses. So I've got the candles for light, um, to the left of the Jesus statue is an incense burner uh, for smell. In front of the Jesus statue is a little bowl that was salt in it for taste. There's a feather off to the left side. I don't know if that's very easily seen. Um, behind it is a little Krishna shrine that you can't really detail, but it's a classic Krishna with male and female images. He's playing a flute. Uh, we're each the flute, right? A little different shape, a little different sound, but it's the breath of God blowing through our individuality. Mm. And there's a little cow behind Krishna that's at peace. Uh, the cow represents the wandering mind, but the, you know, the music from the divine settles it. Um, let's see. On the right side, and it's not very clear, I've got an antique singing bowl. I have a lot of singing bowls. I only spent real money on one and it's this one. It's from the, it was made in the 1700s. It has a beautiful tone. Uh, so it's a sound symbol. And then I have a little bell that uh, came out of a Catholic church. It has the uh, symbols of the four gospels and actually says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on it. Um, so you can see it's a combination. And I have, uh, it's hard to see, but there are some yogic prayer beads. And then there's a prayer rope from uh, the famous Greek, uh, famous Greek Orthodox, um, Orthodox Greek monastery. So you can see it's, it's a combination of my spiritual life, uh, mm. uh, yoga, Christianity, and then the the uh, symbols of the five senses. Mm. Love uh, it. and it's all there. And then on my um, if you go, to, I think I sent you two pictures of my study table. So I had a much simpler thing here. So this is where I do my study. And I always have a little shrine there. So I, this is the Om symbol, which is central for yogis in, in what the Om vibration means, the creative word of God, which both creates the world and then takes us from creation back into divine presence. You can't see it too well, but in Sanskrit, it's carved into this brass, the Gayatri mantra, which is one of the most ancient Hindu yoga mantras uh, that has the meaning of may the light of this, may he who lights 
the sun light my understanding, right? It's a, it's a great mantra. And then whoever I'm studying, the, the image is here. So if I'm studying New Testament Jesus stuff, Jesus will be here. If I'm studying Yogananda stuff, Yogananda will be here. That's a Yogananda, little Yogananda statue. Uh, but I have little statues for the major yogis that I study. And then if I don't have a statue, for, and I, when I study, I really, I spend months on one person. And that image helps me to sense presence and to get into their mind and heart and their spirit that's in their words. So I try to make that full connection when I'm studying. Uh, these are some little prayer beads uh, in the front. And then uh, off to the left is my wife's presence. Uh, my wife is the most holy, pure, minded, hearted person I know. And she does little doodles. So that's one of her doodles that I framed. And uh, so my mm -hmm. wife's presence is always there at this little little altar. Uh, now, if you go to the other picture of this little area, uh, if I don't have a statue of the person whose writings I'm studying, then I take the statue out. I just put a candle there for light and then uh, a little singing bowl. So light and sound mm. to see and hear the things of God. Mm. Um, so you can see I'm, and I, so what happens is in the morning, I come into my office I, or my meditation area. I light the candles on the bookcase altar in here. Um, I have incense. I use the incense that Chopra used. So that, you know, there's that psycho, um, uh, neuro can, there's that neuro psychological neurological conditioning, right? So the fragrance of the Chopra center, I have, I have an incense that they use. Uh, and then the fragrance that, that, uh, that Roy used at center for spiritual awareness. I have, I just alternate them every other day. Um, so I burn one of those incenses, not too long because incense isn't good for your lungs. So I burn it just enough to get the fragrance and to get that psychological response. And then, um, uh, as I am kind of moving the incense in front of the two altars, I'm reflecting on the different ways of perceiving and expressing God based on the symbols. Um, I then sit down and do my, my study and devotional reading. Uh, when I'm done with the reading, I often, not all the time, I'll often do some chanting if I have time. Some I, I prefer Sanskrit chanting. You can chant from the Psalms. Um, I then will uh, uh, be in front of that bookcase altar for my two forms of meditation. So I do my embodied practice. So physical body awareness, I actually touch my head and arms and torso and connect with the body, go into the inner body, um, do some work with the life and energy in the body, and then how that comes out of and connects with universal life and energy around me until I experience harmony and unity within the body and then without the body. And then I do um, a prayer of intent. And then I move into what I would call my transcendental meditation practice. So 
Um, I use breath, I use mantra, I use the Kriya Yoga spinal breathing practice. It kind of becomes one practice. Um, I've actually, you find this interesting. I actually have concluded this spinal breathing practice from the yoga tradition releases DMT (laughs) from the pineal gland. And uh, sounds like a good time. Yeah. So that, you know, you've got that really kind of uh, what we would call psychedelic substance being produced Mm. naturally from the brain yeah and i i sit until there's a shift into pure awareness and then i abide in that Mm. Um, i end my practice with a prayer that i've memorized from one of the upanishads which is a book of yogic philosophical reflection and teaching Um, it's just a prayer that reflects my life purpose and so i pray that and then i'll offer a prayer for others and bang that's my ceremony and ritual every day i love it i love it i i don't want to spend a ton of time but i just wanted to show folks because it reminded me of a few things this i have this right in front of me so i'm looking up just above my monitor um because this is the beginning of my spiritual life like i was i was just a kid not not even with a toe dipped into any sort of religion or spirituality as i as I grew up and then I'm 17 years old and I encounter Mormonism and it, it reminds me like not everything has been all bad. There was, there was magic there and there right. were good things. And there was, there were, there was a call to me to, to, to not just be okay with the life that I was living and the way it was going, but to do something different with my life. And um, so I look at that a lot and it, it has positive and negative meanings to me, but it sort of sits as an altar right in front of me just up above where I'm at and uh, sort of is that introduction to religion slash spirituality as a kind of a combined thing. And then right behind me, right behind, uh, you can kind of see the edge of it on my side of my arm. There is my little Zen garden. And I've got like a little uh, like Lotus plant kind of candle warmer and uh, my fancy glasses sit there behind. um, But I'll sit and turn around and I'll, play with that garden and put little stamps in the sand and kind of look at Buddha and try to recenter myself on what Buddha stands for. For me, I don't get into the religious side of like the superstition that you were mentioning running into, but the idea of learning myself to sit with suffering, hence the world unfolding just as it is without manipulating it. And uh, a reminder to me to be, uh, to also reduce suffering in the world, to go out and be kind to others and to be, to be good to people. And, um, I really try to work daily on that. And I, I, if you, I think if you ask my wife or talk to my kids, they would say I'm just night and day different than I was five years ago or 10 years ago. And then in my living room is this picture by Jim Fagora called the Stone Ape Theory. I had a, a really sacred experience on ayahuasca um, where I sort of learned how big all of this was since the beginning of time and how insanely miraculous it is that this one species on planet Earth developed self-awareness and has opposable thumbs and can do something with it, right? Like maybe dolphins and whales, for instance, have self-awareness, but because they have flippers and not hands, they're stuck doing whale and dolphin stuff till the end of time. Right. And they're, they're not going to be able to get off, off the hamster's wheel like us humans have and sort of magical how that all happened. But uh, just to share that with folks um, that I think it is important to have altars. I think it is important to have, things that draw your attention away from the normal past and future thinking that we go into and to get present again with 
who we want to be or how we want to show up in the world and to be aware of others and our inner world. So uh, I'll, I'll put that there and put this back up. Um, I don't have much time left, so I want to ask you at least one more question. I want to go right to the last one and because I think it's a big deal for people. When they've deconstructed religion and let go of the myth stories around what is on the other side and the promises and assurances, if you just pay your tithing here and just check these boxes, you will live in eternity with your family forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And when you deconstruct the religious system, even as you take on a spiritual life, you sort of have to arrive at the fact that we don't exactly know what happens after this life. And we're sort of guessing. And at least one valid guess is that it's just nothing. It it just ends. And other valid guesses is that, you know, maybe your energy goes off back into the, the universe, but your thoughts on death and the act of dying to get to death. And, um, how death and dying have impacted your spiritual awareness? Yeah, good question. Um, I spent 30 years as a military chaplain and hospice chaplain. And when it comes to death in the military, chaplains are always involved. And of course, hospice work, you're dealing with people in their last six months or six weeks or six Mm. minutes of life. So I've spent many, many years um, immersed in death and being with people in death. And I've experienced the wide spectrum from dying as a deeply spiritual and inspirational event or experience to gruesome, traumatic, disturbing experiences. Uh, I've been with many people holding them, holding their hands as they're dying. Um, And each one of these, you know, events imprints on my soul. And it it always uh, was a period of deep reflection for me. And then the question of, you know, I don't know how it's going to be for me, but to the extent that I can be aware, how am I going to do this, right? I want to be prepared to do it. I did learn in hospice that that I somehow I thought that death would be a significant enough emotional experience that people would want to talk about life and death and spirituality. <laughs> they don't. Very few do. Right. Uh, people tend to die as they lived. Uh, it's also generally true that um, if you live well, you die well. You know, people with a lot of psychic conflict and emotional disturbance and trouble, they, they tend to have a hard time. Um, so I, I've experienced the full gambit, um, in yoga, the ideal is to die consciously in union with awareness of, and in union with the eternal. The idea is you sense it coming and you surrender yourself into it and you just let go. Uh, in both yoga and Buddhist traditions, there's this teaching of dying before you die In other words, finding a way in consciousness to let go of the little person and to experience the life beyond that so that the transition is familiar to you, comfortable Mm. to you. You've taken Mm. that step, so it's not a a shock. Um, 
this idea for Christians, this idea of dying, you know, Paul, I die daily, dying daily in Christ, you know, for a Christian could be a preparation for this. If you watch the, uh, there was a documentary done on the life of Yogananda called Awake. And if you watch that, there's film from the 19, I think it was 34 or 35 when his guru died. Um, his guru actually died in lotus posture meditating. And there's film of Yogananda sitting next to him and his master has died, but he's still in yoga. He's still in lotus posture. His head has dropped and Yogananda is holding his head up and they actually buried him that way. They didn't, they didn't move him. They just dug a hole and slid him in and in lotus posture. So uh, the idea is to die consciously in union with God. Um whether or not that happens, you know, I I have to assume I'm as likely to get hit by a truck as anybody else. Uh, when my mother died, I prayed, you know, working in hospice, you learn the big three problems are pain, nausea, and anxiety. And I prayed for my mother for a death without pain, fear, nausea. And fortunately, that's exactly what happened. And I didn't want her to be alone and she did die in my arms uh, i was present at that moment so mm. uh, for me that was about as perfect as you get um i want to die in an inspiring way consciously i i i've imagined this uh i used to do boxing in colleges on the college boxing team and you train till you get muscle memory and so that if you're hit in the side of the head and you're half conscious you can still function to defend yourself right with certain combinations and i've done this so much in my mind and in spirit i'm hoping that even if i'm hit by a trucker the disease that takes half my consciousness away that um that spiritual muscle memory will kick in so that i can uh, go as consciously as possible and in an inspiring way to my family um there is the ideal, you know, we talk a lot about what if this was your last day, how would you live, right? It's good for insight. I try to do that. I don't find it practical. I, I don't know anybody that can really do that. Uh, I think about it sometimes and it inspires me for 10 minutes. Uh, I do try to live as kindly and lovingly as possible, just as spiritual practice. Um, but I... I do want last moments to be in kindness and love. My wife have a practice. Every time we separate, when we kiss, it's in our minds. It's if this is the last time, this is the last kiss, right? Uh, we fully expect to come back together, but we, we want to have control of our last moment, if that makes any sense. It does, because at some point, that will be your last moment. And so many people, they'll get into a big argument and then somebody dies or gets hit by a car, or has a heart attack, you know, and there's regret, regret, regret. Yeah. Um, so um, Steve Carter wrote a little anthology called Moth and Rust. It's about death and dying. Uh, I have a little essay in there. I think it's called On the Porch or something, but uh, if folks are interested, they can look that up. And I share two experiences that I had reflecting on death and and um, what it might be like to suddenly find yourself there. Uh, I'll I'll end this with um, I ran across this 
verse the other day. It's a, actually a statement from his the memoirs of the famous poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. So he lived from 1809 to 1892. Um, I wouldn't call him a mystic. He was a poet, so he was creative, and creative people oftentimes tend to have insight. And uh, he had a very difficult and traumatic childhood. He had periods of life that were very uh, so difficult that he uh, would sometimes wish for death. And in his memoirs, he said this, and it kind of summarizes so much of what we've talked about. A kind of waking trance I have frequently had quite up from boyhood when I have been all alone. This has generally come upon me through repeating my own name two or three times to myself silently. It's almost like a little mantra practice. He goes on, till all at once, as it were, out of the intensity of consciousness of individuality, the individuality itself seemed to dissolve and fade away into boundless being. And this is not a confused state but the clearest of the clearest, the surest of the surest, the weirdest of the weirdest, utterly beyond words, where death was an almost laughable impossibility, the loss of personality, and then in parentheses he has, if so it were, the loss of personality, if so it were, seeming no extinction, but the only true life. Bam, I just, that's from a poet, you know what I'm saying? Who I don't know had any deep spiritual practice. This mm. tremendous uh, inner reflection and inner experience of his life, life itself, a clear transition into what uh, appears to be or could be a um, clear uh, ongoing existence. I, I just found that to be very profound. Mm. I, I just want to say, I mean, I, I've had two conversations for this series before this conversation with you. You're the third one. And the first two were just fantastic. And this one has been every bit of that. The I'm really excited about this format of giving folks like you a chance to kind of take a list of, I think, really good, profound questions, and you pick the ones that are meaningful to you and for us to have a conversation. And there were several moments in this conversation where uh, I just, I feel like things said are going to be very helpful to this audience who is deconstructing and wrestling with kind of reconstructing a new life and trying to figure out what's important and what isn't. And um, Phil, I just your life experience and your, your wisdom. Um, and that just comes, I don't know that to say it that way, just, I don't, it doesn't do it justice. Your life experience and having sat deeply with who you are and what's going on in the outer world has led to, I think a really helpful perspective that gets shared. And you said earlier that people at times have seen God in you. And I, that makes perfect sense when we share of ourselves in a way that, someone can sense that things maybe are different or bigger than they thought they were. And that was my experience in this conversation. And I just want to say thank you for your time and uh, for being so thoughtful about um, this project I'm trying to carry out and for spending uh, a couple of hours here, helping our audience to 
recognize maybe the depth of of a path that that they're looking for help on their own and that your path has such depth to it that maybe they can glean some things that'll be useful and i think they will oh you're very kind and i always love talking to you uh, mm. you've got the heart and the mind of a seeker and you have this integrity behind it so i always enjoy it yeah well thank you phil and uh, folks you can check out uh uh, the show in audio form at almostawaken.org or third-party uh, podcast apps like uh, iTunes or Google Play. You can also find uh, the video version on YouTube uh, at the Mormon Discussion Incorporated uh, YouTube channel where all of our various podcasts are. And uh, there's a whole series of these conversations. So if you really enjoyed this conversation with Phil McLemore, uh, I think you'll love the others as well. And Phil, thank you again, and uh, I hope you have an awesome day. Oh, thank you. Okay, take it easy, my friend. All right, bye-bye. 